church. Welcome online as well. We're going to do something a little different this morning. Uh, We were supposed to jump back into Nehemiah. We've been working through the book of Nehemiah for the last, been about a month and a half now. And um, I felt like the Lord wanted to say something kind of different this morning. I normally don't do this. I'm not a a super charismatic kind of guy that gets these like visions and words like in the moment. Um, But occasionally uh, the Lord will speak to me and uh, sort of give me that very gentle but undeniable nudge. And um, yeah, I think the Lord wants to say something a bit unique this morning. So we're going to hit pause on Nehemiah and we're going to go back to Genesis 22. Uh, we were actually there a couple of weeks ago, um, if you were here for our Father's Day service, but, but we're going to go back there again and take a second look um, at an event that took place, a father and son moment. So if you have a Bible, um, it won't be on the screen behind me unless our tech person can just quickly whip up something from Genesis chapter 22. Um, we do have a few Bibles on the info table in the back. You're very welcome to grab one. Um, And I heard there's uh, Bible apps online now, so try that as well. Otherwise, you can go first century and just listen to the word of God read out loud. Genesis 22, we're going to go verses 1 all the way through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But... The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. If you're wondering what that word Jireh was this morning, Jehovah Jireh means the Lord, our provider. Father, would you help us this morning as we consider um, for the nth time these words, this moment, this thing that you've done. Lord, would you help us to have hearts and minds that are truly open, soft, and receptive to what you want to say to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we were singing the words, Jaira, Jaira, you are more than enough. You are our provider. Uh, I did think to myself, I wonder how many people are wondering, like, when, when did we start singing to Jaira? Is that, is that God? Like, what is that? Um, and some of you, of course, have heard the word. It's been sung before. Jehovah Jaira. So I thought, well, perhaps it would be helpful to explain um, what that word is and where it actually comes from in Scripture. So there it is. Genesis 22. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is our provider. The story is uh, shocking, to say the very least. Every time I read it, I can't help but think of my son, who happens to be named Isaac, my eldest son, and just the thought of being told by God to sacrifice the life of my eldest son, my boy, Isaac. It, it almost brings me to tears. It's traumatic. It's shocking. It's shocking on so many levels, uh, not the least that we're, we're, we're led to believe that this God, Yahweh, as the Jews knew him as, or Jehovah, if you prefer, he was unlike the other gods, particularly the pagan gods, the gods of the neighboring nations. During that time, it would have been a given. It would have been uh, assumed that there's many gods. Every nation, every people group, every geographical area had its own god. It would reside over that land and provide or judge. But the Hebrew God was different. He was the creator God. He was certainly strong and mighty and could execute judgment and could pour out his wrath, particularly if the innocent were being treated unjustly. But he was different. He wouldn't demand child sacrifice. That was the last thing that Yahweh would expect from his people. And so it shows up in the story in this really bizarre, like what, what is happening? What is happening? So Abraham apparently, well not apparently, quite explicitly, we're told Abraham is being tested. Now God always tests his people as a means of preparing them for great responsibility. He helps us. He disciplines us. He sharpens us. He, he, he takes us on these journeys and 
and, and allows us to grow, go through difficult uh, seasons, circumstances in order to form our character. Just like a good father is being tested. And at this point in the story, Abraham already knows that there is something big that God has in store for him. God has already made him a promise that he would bless him, that he would give him a son. In a very unique, a very special, supernatural way, God would give Abraham a son. And through his offspring, through his family, he would bless the world. And so he did. He gave him a son. He was an old man when he finally uh, received Isaac, him and his wife Sarah, well beyond childbearing years. God gives him a son. God will give us gifts. In fact, we're told elsewhere that God is a gift giver. He loves giving his children good gifts. We're told that God doesn't withhold anything good from those who walk uprightly. And I would argue that in Jesus Christ, God calls us upright, righteous. So in Jesus, God doesn't hold any good gifts from his children. Abraham was called upright or righteous because he believed God. He believed him enough to actually obey him when it was shockingly um, confusing out of place, hard. He obeyed God. And God called him righteous. God will give us gifts. He'll, he'll, he'll make us promises. He'll include us in his family. He'll invite us to participate in the things that he's doing in the world, the great mission that he's on to bless the world through his people. And then he'll give us gifts in order to, to see his plans fulfilled through our lives. Just like he gave Abraham this son, Isaac. But then at some point along the way, inevitably, we have the tendency to take the good gifts that God gives us and make idols out of them. There's probably a better word for it. It's an idol anyways. We make a God out of it. We make it the center of our attention. Our whole world can begin to orbit around this good gift that God has given us. And in effect, it becomes the object of our worship. This is what we do. This is, I would say, this is part of fallen human nature. We take good things and we make gods out of them. The very things that God will give us, oftentimes, in fact, if I can just very plain we'll do this with our children now, i know a lot of you in here don't have children maybe don't want children you're like maybe someday not thinking about it not even married but some of you are about to have children in fact our little church family is about to see this like massive influx of children and can i tell you can i just be very very plain forgive me if i'm if i'm projecting but i don't think i am one of the greatest temptations you'll ever face when it comes to making an idol out of a good gift from God is your children. It's true. It's true. And there's something about it that is, in fact, from the heart of God. Us, like our creator, have like been hardwired to love our children. Heck, I would die for any one of my kids. I'm sure I would. I would throw myself in front of a bus. And I'm sure... 
If Abraham had the option, in a second he would have died in the place of his son. That's not what God told him to do. So along the way, God will give us good gifts. Maybe it's a kid, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's whatever it is. Name your thing. Name your gift. Name your idol. Along the way, God will say, now I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to take you on um, through another part of the process. You're going to have to be tested. I'm going to ask you to surrender a good gift. Now, God's not yet asked me to uh, slaughter my son. I will confess, there's been moments. I'm like, God, do you want him? Kids. No, I love my kids. It's great. God will give us a good gift. And he'll say, he'll say, I want you to give it back to me. Before you turn this thing into an idol, give it back. Of course, this is all very uh, abstract. Like, what do you do? Climb a mountain with a dagger and fire? Probably not. But I believe you'll know it when you get there. God will give you a great paying job. He's going to ask you to share your cash. God will give you a great church family, surround you with friends who care about you, who see you, who know you, who give a rip about you. Good gift. He's going to ask you, who is your provider? Who's God? How many of you have, like, I remember praying for a wife for years and years. I've told this story many times, but it's just, it just never gets old to me. I was 32 when I met my wife, Shirley. That was like way beyond the date that I had envisioned in my mind. I prayed, I prayed, Lord, where's the, where's the one? Bring her to me. Am I ready? Get me ready. You know, all these very, like all, you know, very Christian sounding prayers. Do, do whatever you need to do, Lord. Get me ready. Change my heart. Prepare me to, to love my wife like Jesus. Where is she? Late 20s, early 30s, 31, 32. And I'm like, why have you forsaken me? And then finally, I meet this wonderful, gorgeous, God-loving woman from South Africa. And I'm like, this is it. She's the one. Um, and how tempting it's been. We do it to each other. We take this gift that God gives us. We begin to expect that person to provide for our needs in only a way that God can. And we put a weight of expectation on a spouse or a loved one, a kid, another human that will crush that person and destroy the relationship. And God in his mercy comes along and he says, give it to me. Give it to me. Who is your provider? Who is your God? Who do you think? is going to truly satisfy your deepest desires. 
ask us to do something shocking or test us. I don't know if this means anything to you. Um, this is very personal. You think, oh, what could it be? It, it could be that like Abraham, what God has asked for you to give up really makes very little sense at all. It's almost parallel to the scene in the garden. If we go all the way back to the first couple of chapters of Genesis, we see the man and the woman placed in this garden, this serene place where they were enjoying relationship, like wholeness, deep intimacy with each other and God himself. And right in the middle of the garden, God places this tree. This is bizarre. So it's a beautiful story, but it is kind of odd that of all the tests, of all the things, of all the prohibitions, God puts a fruit tree right in the middle of the garden. He says, don't eat from that one, which is in the midst of the garden. How arbitrary is that? Now, look, at I've, I've, I've listened to plenty of Tim Mackey, and I've read all the commentaries. I get the, the symbolism is beautiful, and I don't mean to to sort of reduce it down to this weird arbitrary thing that God has done. But part of the narrative is the fact that God actually asks us to do things that oftentimes don't make sense. He asks us to trust him in ways that will actually compel us to trust him above and beyond even our own logic and I'm not trying to suggest that God is illogical or this irrational wreck. But how oftentimes do we elevate our own intellect, our own ability to deconstruct and understand above God himself? And so he'll take us on these journeys to say, you're not going to understand this, but guess what? I've not called you to lean on your own understanding. I want you to trust me. I am your provider. So oftentimes he'll say, let's go for a journey. I want, to, I want you to take the gift with you, that wonderful gift that I've, gave, I've given you, and go for a journey to worship. And at some point along the way, maybe you're about three days off, God says, yeah, you remember that gift that I gave you? I'd like it back now. Thank you very much. Did you enjoy it? Wonderful. It's from me. I own it. May I have it back now? You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But what about the vision? What about the plan? What about the whole, like, let's bless the whole world through my family talk? Yeah, no, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do that for sure. But it doesn't make sense. What you're asking me to do is crazy. Yeah, it's okay. I'm your provider. Don't, you don't need to, to understand. You don't need to have all of your questions answered. As a parent, the temptation would be create a a bubble around your precious little gifts. And God will come along with his little pen and go, pop, let's pop the bubble. Let's pop the bubble. Because I need you to trust me, not your ability to protect your precious gift. I am your provider. I am your protector. And I will fight for you. 
this is the journey of trusting and obeying God. Jesus said that the kingdom of God, it's like a man who found buried treasure. When he realized what was there, he sold everything he had so that he could go and buy the field and begin digging up this treasure from the ground. Who is your true treasure as you follow Jesus, as you seek the kingdom first? God will consistently, painfully ask us to sell everything we have again, yeah, again, again, yeah, again, surrender. In fact, let's just make this into a daily thing, a lifestyle, if you will. Sell everything, give up everything, die to yourself, take up your cross, follow me, and I will lead you into who you're looking for, because Jesus is the treasure in the field. He is the gift. He is the pearl of great price. And we're meant to live our lives in utter abandonment to any gift that might compete with our affection for the true gift, the gift giver and the gift himself. That is our king, our living king, Jesus Christ. And you know, digging treasure, have you ever dug up treasure? No, of course you haven't. Have you? I imagine digging up treasure in the field. And I, I, I mean, I've dug holes. In fact, I don't know if you remember when we bought this building, there used to be one of these old marquees. Big old. I remember a couple of the guys were like, hey, we're going to, let's get rid of the old marquee. And I'm like, are uh, you sure? Like, what? okay, go ahead. And you know what they did? They just knocked the thing over. But it weighed like a gajillion tons. So it just sat there. I'm like, oh, thanks, guys. So, a couple of you actually, I think, I'm, I'm, I hold you responsible. You were part of that, weren't you? You just knocked the thing over. I'm like, oh yes, that's better. <laughs> but no one could have known how heavy that thing was. So Judah and I, my seven-year-old, got a couple of shovels and we dug a giant hole. Do you, you realize this? We dug, dug a giant hole outside and we buried the thing. It's still in front of the building. It's just underground now. It took all day to dig that hole. I even have pictures of Judah laying in the hole. It looks like he's being buried alive. It's funny. So I've dug a few holes. Digging for treasure, it's, it's no light matter. It doesn't just happen because you, you, you wish it to. It requires uh, work, good work kind of work that the Holy Spirit uh, provides the energy for. But it's work nonetheless. I had killer blisters by the end of that day. Which is really good for a preacher, let me tell you. Every once in a while. And so we're out there digging in this field, looking for the true treasure. And people are meant to walk along and say, what are you looking for? What, 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 what's in the ground? What are you trying to dig up? It's like when Jesus in John chapter 1 was walking along and two of John the Baptist's disciples happened to look up and 
John the Baptist himself saw Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And it says that John's disciples, the two of them, left John and began to follow, stalk Jesus. And Jesus turned around and he said, What are you looking for? Now, isn't that just the question to end all questions? What are we looking for? What are you doing here? Why do we keep showing up in this place? What are we looking for? Who are we looking for? Jesus, that's, that's the point of the story. It's why Abraham was told to not sacrifice his son. That wasn't the climax. That wasn't the punchline. That wasn't the pinnacle. That wasn't the point of the story. The story itself was the prelude to the real story. Because 42 generations later, the Son of God would begin to walk together with his father up that hill. Right in the same area. Bible scholars essentially agree that the Mount that Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah is the same little hill that the temple was built on. 28 generations later. On a hill on just the other side of the valley, outside of the city, we find the Son of God walking up that hill with his father, wood on his back, to lay down his life for our sins and the sins of the world. He is the treasure buried in the field. He is who we're looking for. He's the one who's worth giving up every good thing to spend the rest of our lives digging in that field, looking for that treasure, anticipating the day when he comes again and we get to go home. We get foretastes of it here and now. It's one of the reasons why we keep gathering here to remind each other where are we going? Who are we looking for? Jesus. And we're going home. Where did Jesus take the disciples of John? When he turned, he said, what, what are you looking for? Do you remember how they responded? This is John chapter 1. They actually asked Jesus a question. He said, what are you looking for? And they said, Jesus, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? And Jesus said, come and see. And so they went with them. They began to walk down that road. We're told it was around 4 p.m. So these two men said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, it's getting kind of late. Would you mind if we <clears throat> crashed at your place tonight? And Jesus said, sure. Come and be where I am. Come and abide with me. That's, that's the word that they use. Where are you staying? Where are you abiding? It's the Greek word may know. You know what the Greek word for home is? It's monet. It's from the same root word. Jesus wants to bring us home with him. That we can be where he's at. He is the treasure we're all looking for. But along the way, God is going to ask us to sacrifice the things that we value the most. The gifts that we will be, we will be tempted to make gods out of. It could be our children. It could be our spouses. It could be our money or all of the above. Are you in? Are you in? Kind of depends. Usually it takes a little bit of life to realize, man, I've tried everything else. I've tried religion. 
I've tried deifying my spouse. Whew, that didn't work. I've tried deifying my kids. I've tried deifying my career. I've tried deifying every good gift I've ever given, and they've all come up short. Now, are you in? You want to start digging? I'm totally in. I'm convinced that Jesus is who we're all looking for. Can we stand together? We must remember Jorge is going to come up and lead us in communion now. Um, if you don't have a little communion cup, um, you can get one on your way in. We'll be passing them out now. Please feel free to grab one. back the top, kind of get the elements ready. They can be a little finicky. Jorge is going to share a few words so that as we receive communion, um, we understand what this is. Um, that microphone, can Jorge just use it? So let's dig deeper with the Holy Spirit and give our gifts back to the Father in Jesus Christ. The scripture says in John 6, the one who chooses my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life and I shall raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The one who chews my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. So just let's give it back to the Lord not only our gifts, I can say, that he will glorify in those gifts, but also give back what uh, you are carrying and I'm carrying and it not belongs to the Lord. Could be any kind of sin, anything that the Lord will just still remind in your heart that he will show you mercy and love. So this is the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Okay, go ahead. And he took the cup 
and bring so let's use the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and to receive eternal life and to have freedom right now We thank you, Father. We thank you, Father, to receive our gifts, to receive anything that is not belongs to you.